When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Marvelous Disney with Aaron Adams, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings at one of the more dynamic divisions of the Walt Disney Company, which is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. This is entertainment writer Jim Hill and my co-host, the amazing Aaron Adams, and I are recording this week's show on Thursday, September 20th, 2023, and just in the past 48 hours, there's been all sorts of Marvel-related news breaking. I mean, case in point, look, you know, Aaron, I don't think either of us would say that we were rabid fans of Secret Invasion. It was a show that entered both my eyeballs and ear holes simultaneously. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, that that was right down the middle. It wasn't, it wasn't praise. It wasn't disparaging. It was like, wow, that, ooh, you should work for Hallmark. You know, it's like, with that recommendation, uh, well, look, all right, if you want to hear from Samuel L. Jackson himself about how this Marvel Studios production actually came together, Marvel Studios assembled the making of Secret Invasion. Just popped up on this subscription streaming service yesterday, uh, Wednesday, September 20th. On the other hand, if you want to learn more about how Thor Love and Thunder, how that came to look the way that it did, uh, the latest art of book from Marvel Studios, Marvel Studios Thor Love and Thunder, the art of the movie, hit store shelves on Tuesday of this week, September 19th. And I, I have to say, Aaron, this past couple of weeks, it's been difficult to, to ride the tidal wave of Marvel-related books that have been coming out. I mean, just today, for example, I learned of Joanna Robinson's MCU The Reign of Marvel Studios, uh, which is coming from Live Right Press uh, October 10th of this year. And that 528-page hardcover, $35, $31.50 if you head over to Amazon and pre-order. But I have to say, it comes with some killer behind-the-scenes stories about how uh, specific Marvel projects got cast, which Aaron and I will share on the second half of today's show. But again, lots of Marvel-related news, including a dispute over what the next film in Phase 5 of the MCU actually caused to make. But first, want to remind you that the news portion of Marvelous Disney is brought to you by Touring Plan's own travel agency. And if you're thinking of heading on down to Walt Disney World in the not-so-distant future, why not give these obviously very knowledgeable folks a chance to book your vacation package to that resort? And, and if you're nice, maybe even toss in a subscription to Touring Plan's for free. Seriously, though, if you're planning on heading to Central Florida anytime soon, Touring Plan's own travel agency is the smartest way to go. Please check them out at touringplans.com backslash travel. Okay, so earlier this week, Vanity Fair revealed that this upcoming release from Marvel Studios, and again, the Marvels, and Vanity Fair put out that it only cost $130 million to make. But, but given that the investment community has been all over the mouse lately, 
for spending $150 million to make a Haunted Mansion movie, only to then have that seriously underperform at the box office this past summer. For them to learn that a Marvel movie is arriving this November with just a $130 million price tag, that was deemed a reason to rejoice, or, or so thought Wall Street. Unfortunately, party ended rather abruptly 24 hours later when Forbes reported that the real cost of making the Marvels was more than double the amount that Vanity Fair had initially reported. In fact, that the real cost of this Nia DaCosta movie was actually $274.8 million. To make matters worse, especially if you live in the UK, Word got out that in an effort to keep the cost of producing, again, the sequel to the 2019's Captain Marvel down, Marvel Studios opted to primarily shoot the Marvels in the UK at Pinewood Studios in Buckinghamshire and Longcross Studios in Surrey, to be exact, in order to then qualify for a $55 million subsidy, which had been provided by the British government. This happens all the time, this sort of filmmaking subsidy, in fact, for the better part of a decade up here in New England, the state of Massachusetts offered all sorts of tax breaks to folks that would come and shoot movies in the Bay State. And the thinking was that, okay, we give you, say, a 10, 15, $20 million tax write-off or, or subsidy, but you then come to town and make your 70, 80, $100 million movie, and that money funnels back into the economy. So that's the thinking there of they spent $55 million to lure the Marvels to the UK to shoot there, and this $200 million or this $130 million movie gets shot at Pinewood and Longcross Studios. And also, there have, in fact, been MCU movies that cost more than $274.8 million to make. And, and those are uh, Avengers Endgame for 2019. That cost $400 million to make. Avengers Age of Ultron from 2015. That cost $365 million to make. And then finally, Avengers Infinity War from 2018. That's the bargain here in the pile. That only cost $300 million to make. So you're, what you're trying to tell me is I should be expecting an endgame or a, an Avengers uh, level of, of quality, right? All, all of those co-stars coming in or what? Where's the money going? They're in space half the time. It's a black background. What the hell? Yeah, <laughs> I was going to bring this up. You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. We have three lovely female characters, Captain Marvel, Ms. Marvel, and, and Photon as the centerpiece of this. And, and remember, those that have seen this so far say that this 98-minute-long movie is breezy, it's fun, it's something we haven't seen from Marvel in quite some time. And, you know, honestly, Disney is anticipating that it's going to do really well at the box office. However, when you spend $274.8 million to make your movie, and it's only 90 minute, 98 minutes long, that breaks down to $2.8 million per minute. You know, Jim, I, you're not taking into account one critical factor. Uh, flurkins are very expensive to hire. They've got notorious agents, and uh, there's a lot of flurkins I hear in this movie. So I think a lot of the money could have could have been a, a flurkin fund. Actually, <laughs> I know you're being silly here, but I, you actually hit upon a real expense because it turns out 
Brie Larson is deathly allergic to cats. Yeah, got to CG all them bad boys in the shots, right? That's it, exactly. Yeah. So it's like, oy. But, but anyway, speaking of the poor woman who had to shoot the shots where Brie Larson is gesturing and, and petting an invisible cat, Nia DaCosta spoke with Vanity Fair about working on this movie. And, and she said, well, look, while she loved filming the Marvels, Nia admitted that there were days when she texted Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings director, Destin Daniel Crichton, to vent about the mounting frustrations that DaCosta was feeling. You know, it's, and she goes on to say, sometimes you'd be on, in, in a scene and you'd be like, what the hell does any of this mean? Or you have an actor that's looking at some crazy thing happening out in space, and, and what they're actually doing is looking at a blue X. Mm-hmm. And you know, there are obviously hard days, days where you tell yourself, this just isn't working. So to circle back to the whole Marvel's cost $2.8 million a minute to make, look, there was a time when people used to gossip about how much Captain EO cost Disney to make in the mid-1980s. I mean, that 3D music video for the parks was only 17 minutes long and was originally budgeted to just cost $10 million. But Francis Ford Coppola ran up the budget to the point where uh, they will admit that it cost $23.7 million to make, which back in the day, that means that Captain EO cost $1.39 million to make. On the other hand, if you adjust for inflation, those $1986, the cost of making Campanillo is now $66.4 million. So that film, once again, has reclaimed the most expensive film to make per minute in Hollywood history with a price tag of $3.9 million a minute. So, you know, the next time you look at your bootleg of Captain EO, just... You know, it's like, wow, that's a really expensive elephant costume there. Look in the background. See if they've got any flurkins cast as extras. Because <laughs> they are expensive. I'm telling they you. Are, they are expensive. Okay. Speaking of Francis Ford Coppola, once again, Vanity Fair had a piece in the past week that shined a spotlight on Kenneth Branagh, the director and star of A Hunting in Venice, the third in Branagh's series of big screen adaptations of Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot books. And as part of this profile... The topic of Kenneth directing the very first Thor film for Marvel Studios came up. And as Bronag was meeting with Marvel Studios head Kevin Feige to discuss his casting ideas and the style in which he wanted to direct Thor, which, you remember, came out in theaters May of 2011, Kenneth told Kevin that he saw the story of Thor strictly in Shakespearean terms, especially when it came to uh, Thor, Loki, and Odin's family dynamic. And uh, well, here's the quote. We've always been interested in what goes on in the, the corridors of power, whether it's in the White House or in Buckingham Palace. And Shakespeare was interested in the lives of medieval royal families, too. But what he did was raid the Roman myths and the Greek myths for story ideas, whereas Stan Lee... I think when it came to developing characters for the Marvel comics, Stan went for the myths that Shakespeare hadn't used. Now, mind you, Feige liked the idea of a family dynamic driving this movie starring Thor, Loki, and Odin. But Kevin had a far different family in mind than the one that Kenneth was proposing. The family that Feige wanted to sort of model Thor and Loki and Odin's relationship on was 
the Corleones, you know, get the, the Godfather, and with the notion of Loki being the Fredo of the family. Yeah, Thor should have gave him a big kiss. <laughs> Take him after a little fishing on the lake, are we? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, man, if that scene would have played out in any Thor movie. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, that would have been hilarious. You have to understand in the Hill family, the Godfather, that's like church at our house. My brother Peter will put it on at family gatherings and we'll all, you know, go into, you know, after a large meal, go down and we'll go to the mattresses, you know, and, and, and wait for the cannolis to come out. God, now I want to edit Thor into the Godfather with Loki and just see what it looks like. But go ahead. <laughs> Well, no, I mean, would the color palette work for that? No, not at all. But still, well, actually, I mean, you know, when when you're tinkering with the the individual work parts, you can drab out the color and and make Thor's bright red a a darker crimson to kind of fit that dark drab interior of the Godfather's den Mm -hmm. of doom. Yeah. Oh, no, please, if you you take that on, let me know. Speaking of, though, (laughs) playing with hues... Did you see this news about last year's Halloween special from Marvel Studios, Werewolf by Night? They're, wait a minute. Are, is this about how they're going to do it in color? Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, no, 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 wait. Let, <laughs> let, me, let me explain. I, uh, Michael Giacchano, uh, you know, who, who directed the original iteration of this thing, which, remember, was, was kind of a, a very loving valentine to those black and white horror films that Universal Studios made back in the 30s and the 40s. And... On October 20th, I want to say. Hang on. Yeah, October 20th, we're going to get Werewolf. Werewolf. <laughs> yes, we're getting Werewolf. I love the movie uh, American Werewolf in London, where the meatloaf travels to London on a vacation, gets bitten by a werewolf, and when the full moon comes out, turns into a werewolf. There we go. All right. <laughs> Professional show business here, folks. Okay. Werewolf by Night in color and uh, michael went on uh, you know now the thinking is that they're taking you know again the special that was crafted last year and turning it into more of a, a tribute to the hammer horror films of the 1960s and uh michael took to social media just this week to say we spent a lot of time working on this color version. We wanted to pay homage to the incredible, vibrant color in horror films like the ones Hammer made, and it's a whole new look for Werewolf by Night. And this drops on October 20th, and then just four days later, we get the Werewolf by Night, the Art of the Special book from Marvel Studios, You know, which will lovingly take us through all of the you know, the carefully crafted black and white images. Though I wonder if this is actually the reason why it's it's arriving in stores as late as it is. Maybe it does, in fact, cover both the black and white version and the color version. I would have held off for the Hammer homage to do that mm-hmm. for the sequel. Because then you can kind of start creating this thing where, hey, if we're going to do Werewolf by Night, it's going to mm-hmm. be Halloween. Mm-hmm. But it's also going to be in a different style of a different horror genre. Or a different horror artiste, you know. Wow. But anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, no, no. I just, I, I'm kind of intrigued by that to go from a different, a, a werewolf by night, but jumping the different style of horror. I mean, you, you know, to go from black and white universal to vivid 
a hammer film too. Well, what if you did like, you know, if you had Technicolor in there, like if you had this evolution from from black and white to what was the next step in in mm-hmm. color. And if it was Technicolor, then do whatever like an homage to the Technicolor era of monster movies and then the next evolution was Viviscope or whatever the hell it is, you know, and and you just keep working your way up every time you do a sequel, you just do the next phase of of whatever horror style that was. Let me throw a different idea at you. Please here. do. Uh, what if, you know, you jumped a decade and you did horror like they did in the 70s, like, say, The Exorcist or The Omen? I mean, you mm-hmm. sort of leaned into that yeah. more based in reality, which somehow made the horror that much more horrifying. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of playground there because you've already got the monsters aspect that you can play with. And then you've got the the witchy magic kind of Mm -hmm. thing with the, you know, like the gem that they had and all that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, all of those ethereal supernatural fringe elements of the marvel universe that we're not quite playing in Mm -hmm. uh that could be their playground and just have so much fun with that but also you know keep a you know like your your theme just keeps evolving kind of like uh, american horror story is an anthology show there you go and it's like this isn't quite an anthology show but we're evolving the look and and always paying homage to the inspiration that that we're pulling from and so this is a really good idea marvel send the check to aaron adam Okay, if you get the you know? stalker movie like you know Halloween, where it's the shadow that's always stalking you. That could be you know very simple, but uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's it's uh, a stupid thought that I like to throw out there, just okay. like uh, on a okay. whim. What about you do this? Okay. Um, well, all right. Now, speaking of things evolving, Tom Holland shared a funny story recently about what it was like to actually be on the set of Spider-Man: No Way Home, which is now infamous for how much of the film script actually got rewritten right on the set and what tom talked about was you could ask the director what happens in act three and his response is i'm still trying to figure it out and speaking of that what's going to happen in the second half of today's marvelous disney Aaron and i have an idea but we'll sort that matter out during this upcoming commercial break Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Last week, we meant to talk about the new season two of I Am Groot on Disney Plus, uh, which you watched all of it. Is it five episodes? Six? How many of their? I honestly oh. don't remember. They were so short. They just mm-hmm. blink, 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 blink and gone. But mm-hmm. they were entertaining. They were. They were. I, you know, I, by the way, what did you th- what did you think of the one that brought back the Watcher? Yeah, that was that was very 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 funny to to have the watcher uh, narrating that that little story and and the I don't want to give away any of the gags because they're so short that mm-hmm. it, it, to spoil a single joke would would do it a disservice. Uh, mm-hmm. The overall, like you know, if you want a review of it, oh, it's great. I think it's mm-hmm. it's charming and it's a lot of fun. And mm-hmm. uh, they're short, bite sized. Doesn't take long to get through the whole season. But I got a problem. And, and this is just one of those Aaron things. You know mm-hmm. how it goes. I don't think that that as a series two would make me go, oh, I need to subscribe to Disney+. Plus. It's, it's too small. 
and uh, almost inconsequential. Like I watched it and went, well, that was nice. And I moved on and, and I really haven't thought much about it since. And uh, I know that the the work is good. The, the quality of everything is great. It's mm-hmm. just that it's so small. And what I was thinking was, you know, what would be awesome mm-hmm. is I remember growing up and watching like Saturday morning cartoons mm-hmm. and they would have like, you know, the Looney Tunes half hour programming block mm-hmm. where they would just mix that stuff up on shuffle. And man, maybe you get a Speedy Gonzalez, maybe you get Sylvester and Tweety Bird, maybe you get Bugs and Daffy. Who knows? It's Saturday morning, but you get a little bit of whatever. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wouldn't it be awesome if they made more of stuff like this that is bite size and packaged it? And, uh, you know, Disney is really a family friendly, you know, aiming at kids. Mm-hmm. Bring back Saturday morning cartoons on Disney+. Plus. Create these little bite-sized things that are are small and easy to produce, you know, because mm-hmm. you're not doing a two-hour movie. We can knock these out relatively quickly, and uh, you do you do a batch of them, and then you create a little block of programming where you actually say, "Hey, at ten o'clock in the morning, we've got the special block is when it launches. You can watch it obviously whenever, mm-hmm. but uh, you know." It's just another way of trying to make something special is just by repackaging it. Right now, it's too small and insignificant. Bundle it with some other stuff that's just like it. And, oh, that's fun. That's neat. That's an interesting idea. I, you know, the, what, uh, the, the one thing, and again, it's, it's kind of ironic that as Aaron and I are talking right now, supposedly uh, the producers are sitting down with the writers. And based on the news last night, they, they seemed hopeful that, at least today, perhaps they could actually resolve the writer's strike. Mm. But again, it just it's one of these drum beats where it's like, that's cute, that's little, that's charming. And you know, and when you talk with somebody involved with it, it's like, thank you for saying that. It was hugely expensive. Right. You know, and, and it's just the whole notion of I'm I'm glad you were charmed, but I'm sorry that you thought it was slight, because that's a year and a half of my life. Yeah, it is. And I get exactly what you're saying. It is not enough to convince someone that they really need to subscribe to uh, Disney+. Plus. I mean, maybe if you're the biggest Groot fan on the planet, but you're only staying for a month. Right. But when you talk with folks who work on the subscription streaming side at Disney, they talk about, yes, we have to lay down big bait every month to get people to stay. But at the same time, you have to lay out a full table Somebody was actually, it was the uh, Carl's date that, you know, they they did a bunch of thing. Yeah. yeah. And they actually described this as like, look, when we do something like that, it's kind of like the relish tray at Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not something you immediately go for, but you're kind of glad when you discover that it's there. It's like, oh, I can get the little pickles. Yep. So I am Groot is, is another relish tray, you know, for the... For the, you know, I guess it, it, it got put online on Disney Plus in August of this year. And so it was kind of sort of the thing when you're up t- front on the top going through the banner seeing what's there. It's like, oh, they got some new I Am Groot stuff. Yeah. yeah I, I'm thinking more along the lines of repackaging for other services because they've got their terrestrial television stuff. Oh, God, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, well, I mean, they've already put Miss Marvel on Hulu and Secret Invasion as well, mm-hmm. right? Yep. It could just be one of those things of if you build more of that, yeah, it's a lot of relish. Mm-hmm. but it's tasty relish. And if you repackage it, if you add relish to a hot dog, well, mm-hmm. that's like a meal now, right? And so it's just like you just build a little bit more of that and then you go can go rebundle it over on Hulu like a year later. Mm-hmm. 
and get, like you always like to say, the second bite of the same apple, which I really got to ask you, how do you eat apples? Because it sounds awfully wasteful. You only take one bite, really? (laughs) Well, you know, uh, what is it? I just heard an amazing story about former Supreme Court Justice Souter. They just did this wonderful documentary with a bunch of his former law clerks, and they talked about how Souter would eat the entire apple like stem and core. Oh, yeah. And, and his staff, you know, it's like, don't do that. You'll get sick. You're a Supreme Court judge. You make them, you need to be healthy to make important decisions. Don't eat the whole apple. So, no, I'm, I'm, I, I, I try to. You know, especially this year with the, the apple crop having been destroyed, basically, by the, the, the hard frost and all the rain. So, yeah. Join us next week on Eating Apples with Jim Hill. There we, we go. There we go. Randy <laughs> Smith. Yeah, there we go. You know, the, the, the other podcast will be getting up yep, out of yep. the ground. So. Okay. All right. So we go from happy Groot news to a little bit of sad news. I mean, we, we talked recently about how Hugh Jackman and Ryan Reynolds were halfway through shooting Deadpool 3 when due to, again, we were just talking about the actors and the writer's strike, these two two actors were forced to go home and, and wait it out. And Hugh went home to his wife of 27 years, Deborah Lee, only to then pack up his stuff and move out because these two then decided to amicably end their marriage. And They uh, released this statement. Uh, We've been blessed to share almost three decades together as husband and wife in a wonderful, loving marriage. Our journey now is shifting, and we have decided to separate to pursue our individual growth. Hold hold on, hold on. I'm sorry. There's there's noise outside real quick. Yeah, it's a stampede of women, and it looks like, yeah, it looks like they're going for you. You look out! Look out! Yeah, this uh, this is dangerous news, but okay, go ahead, continue. Okay, well, all right. Our family has always and will always be our highest priority, and we we undertake this next chapter uh, with gratitude, love, and kindness. And we appreciate your understanding and respecting our privacy as our family navigates this transition in all of our lives. And when they say all of their lives, it's important to note here that Hugh and Deborah Lee uh, have two kids, uh, a son Oscar and a daughter Ava, uh, who's 18. And something like this is always sad news. And mm. uh, we hope they come through it okay. And we, we hope that Hugh is also able to outrun that that herd of women who just taste the, him by. They know, really seem house. determined to uh, get a piece of meat today. They're they're ravenous. <laughs> they're ravenous. Okay, okay. Uh, but but again, you know, hopefully happier times further on down the line. And speaking of further on down the line, we've got Disneyland Forward, the expansion of Disney's Anaheim Resort, and been getting some more details about that. In fact, just in the past week or so, it's now uh, appears to be a third theme park that's actually going to be built across the street from Disneyland Park and Disney's California Adventure. And this should be included as part of that $60 billion in theme park and tourism-based experiences that the company uh, released as part of that investors conference at Walt Disney World just yesterday. And in fact, Josh DeMauro, while he was appearing at that conference, went on to say, what is this project going to feature? And this is the quote that I think will interest Marvel fans. Imagine us bringing Wakanda to life uh, in terms of bringing the latest Disney, Marvel, Pixar intellectual properties to the park. 
we haven't even come close to scratching the surface. And we have learned that incorporating Disney IP increases the return on investment significantly. And I guess what's kind of interesting here is, Aaron, you may recall last year or thereabouts when the word first got out about Disney Forward and the Disney shared some concept art, the giant panther that we've seen in both of the Black Panther films to date showed up as part of the architecture for uh, this, this third theme park, uh, suggesting that, that you know, it was the exterior of a show building and there would be a, a Black Panther-related attraction inside. However, I, Jim Shull would slap me upside the head if I did not, in fact, mention that this is concept art, people. And yes, Josh DeMauro stood on stage and said, imagine us bringing Wakanda to life. He didn't say, we are bringing Wakanda to life. All right. Wouldn't it be neat if he was doing an errand? Wouldn't it be neat if? I think it'd be really cool if somebody would do this. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. So just want to stress that, folks, that, okay, they said it, and it might happen, and it was featured on the early concept art, but I, I think it's my ex-wife, Michelle Viado lead, who, who I, I, I love this turn of phrase for her, it's not concrete until they pour the concrete, and even right. then, it's not concrete. In all of your chats, like they've been uh, Disney as a company, they've obviously been leaning heavily into the Marvel brand by putting it into the parks. Mm. They've obviously got their Star Wars land with Batu. Oh, before I forget, yeah, um, I, 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 we talked about the Avengers Vault uh, mm. at California Adventure. It actually opened this week. There were oh, people cool. inside getting pictures, and it it looks like exactly what they said it would be. It's kind of high end. Uh, Marvel theme park merch. So, cool. But yeah, to, to to back up just what you're saying. Yep, they're, they're doing it. Well, they well they lean into that. My question is, have you ever heard of them getting ready to lean in anything out of the Fox Library? Like, I would die if they did like an alien attraction. Hmm. And and I'm not saying that alien is a good idea because kids, you know, friendly and spooky and and it's a horrible idea, horrible idea. But mm. it, Fox property, you know, they've they've got they spent all that money. Now, if they don't start using it and incorporating it into the parks, does it seem like they're able to are gonna like start selling off bits and chunks of it? What's the deal? I mean, they, they've got it; they should use it, and uh, I think there's got to be some. F- what uh, Fox Princess somewhere wasn't uh, Princess Bride in that pile? Well, this is a piece of news from July of this year. Toward what you just asked about, you know, Disney doing something within the Alien franchise. June thirteenth, two thousand twenty-three. Uh, Disney's first Alien franchise movie gets a two thousand twenty-four release date. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a follow-up story here that says it's been shooting, and now it's. Well, this is bizarre. It, the headline says it's an alien film yep. that's headed directly to Hulu. On the other hand, the body of the article says FX Alien Series yep. continues to film in Thailand uh, without SAG actors. Yeah, I know that there was a series, and I can't remember who was directing it off the top mm-hmm. of my head, but I, there was a good director, and I was excited for it. Mm-hmm. It seems like, you know, if they're going to make more of this stuff, 
it seems like they're interested in it or they think they're the public is interested in it. Well, I mean, think about that film last year, Prey. Oh, yeah. Which will, you know. The, Feature the, the which, Predators. That's it, exactly. But reached back and set it in the early 1700s and had the indigenous people doing battle with these crazy bounty hunters. Yeah, it was Pre- Predator Fox as well. It was, it was. So they got both of them, right? Alien well, and Predator. Think about it. That's how they got the, you know, the Alien versus Predator films out there. So it's, I'm so torn on this, Jim, because I don't want to, you know, a, a ride that would scare the bejesus out of little children with aliens okay. and predators. But I also think about Japan where they've got a zip line that zips you through Godzilla's freaking mouth. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And it's like you could have some fun. I don't Maybe it's a Halloween horror thing that's only a limited time, but... They've got other properties besides Marvel and and Lucasfilm, and I just wonder when they're going to start cherry-picking from all... There's a lot of gems in there they could choose from. Anyway, I'm I'm off track. No, 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 no. no. Just one brief note here. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a time of year... No, don't get me wrong. Disney makes a lot of money off of Mickey's Not-So-Scary. Likewise, out in California, they have their Oogie Boogie Bash, and these are family-friendly... Halloween events, and they do very well for the company, but they don't even begin to approach the amount of money that, say, Not Scary Farm makes for for Not Scary Farm or Halloween Horror Nights makes for Universal on both coasts. Mm -hmm. If you look at Hong Kong Disneyland during its first couple of years of operation, their thinking was, we can try anything. Over here, they don't really know Disney. So they actually did right off of Main Street, mm-hmm. like universal level horror mazes. You know, you went into like a haunted hotel and right. you went into a UFO and it was very popular with, with folks in Hong Kong. But at the same time, they didn't know from what a Disney theme park was supposed to be. And that's the thing here in the States is like, we'd love to do. In fact, it, they spent a couple of years sussing out a kind of a Tim Burton mm-hmm. event that they were looking to maybe do at Disney Hollywood Studios in Florida. And mm-hmm. it was just sort of like we could do Nightmare, we could do His Alice in Wonderland, you know, we could do Frankenweenie, you know, we, we all of these things we own we could do in the parks and but Disney, in the end, just couldn't bring themselves to turn the key on it. Well, I'm going to throw down the gauntlet right now. Disney for Halloween, Escape mm. from the Nostromo. It's your haunted house, and you make it look like the ship from Alien, and you've got dead-end corridors with an alien in it, and your job is to get to the shuttle to escape the Nostromo. And uh, if I see that you do it in the future, I'm coming after you with all my lawyers. Blah, blah, blah is uh, okay. my lawyer. All right. Before you hire the lawyers, <laughs> let, let, me, let me tell you about the actual ride that Disney, when it did Disney MGM, it actually went to Fox and got the rights to Alien. In fact, there was mm-hmm. a moment in the great movie ride where you actually went through the Nostromo and they had the world's worst audio animatronic of Sigourney Weaver. Ooh. But that that was there to distract you from the fact that the alien was about to uncurl itself monster from right. the wall or come down from above with its, you know, its second jaw coming out and biting at you. It was yeah. a, a great bit of misdirection, but Prior to that, they had actually designed for Disneyland an attraction called the Nostromo. And and the gimmick of it was is that it started at the moment that Ripley hit the self-destruct button. And so you're in a a ride vehicle and you have to get 
to the escape pod. All right. Well, I, I call off my lawyers. They've already done it. I, I retract my statement. Well done, Disney. Okay. Well done. Well, all right. But, but they could. But again, because because it was scary, they couldn't bring themselves to do it. Oh, you know, well, get my lawyer back on the phone. There we go. There we go. All right. Anyway, pivoting back to the, the actual topic of the show, Marvel. We were talking at the top of today's show about Joanna Robinson's upcoming book, MCU: The Reign of Marvel Studios. And what I've enjoyed so far of the excerpts I've read of this book is them talking about the difficulty of casting these films. Toward that end, one of the more interesting passages of the book discusses the casting of Captain America, which, according to Kevin Feige, was super hard and it took a long time. He talks about how they had met with so many people who were just not right for the role, he started to think, are we not going to be able to find Captain America? And if we can't find Captain America, how are we going to do the Avengers? Is, is this whole thing going to fall apart? And there was one performer that Marvel Studios really wanted, but early on, he had declined even to audition, and that was Chris Evans. And why he didn't want to audition is Evans had already played Johnny Storm in the two Fantastic Four movies. And Feige, hugely familiar with his work. And it, you know, it was just like, that's the guy. We should get the guy. And it's like, he checks all the boxes. He's an American. And he's a great actor. And he's funny. And he's charming. And he's affable. But the thing is, he also, you know, on screen, when you're watching him, you got this sense of, this is a guy with a moral compass. That he's really relatable. And that... He can play the vulnerability of the early Steve Rogers, but when it, you know, he he can be the the skinny character, but he can also be the, you know, the strong Captain America. And Marvel invites Evans in for a meeting. And, you know, they sit him down, they show him the artwork, uh, they explain what's going to happen with the movie. And, but the thing is, they tell him they need him to commit to a nine-movie deal. Now he doesn't have to audition. But it's still going to be nine movies. So Steve went off. He said, well, I need time to decide. And Feige talks about that he went away for a weekend. And that weekend was tough. Chris Evans comes back and tells him his decision. And it's no. And the thing he talks about is getting that offer. It, it's the ultimate job offer on the biggest scale. And as an actor, you're not supposed to say no to something like that. And when you look at the finished films and you, you see the costumes and at the time it felt like the right thing to do, because again, it was nine movies. Robert Downey Jr. had already been cast as Iron Man. And he really liked the idea of, wow, this could be really fun to do this with, with Chris Evans as Captain America. And he heard that Chris said no. So, you know, it's the Monday after the big weekend and he said no. And, and Robert Downey Jr. gets on the phone and says Having this gig, this steady job, it won't constrict your opportunities. It'll expand them. You'll, you'll have the opportunity in between these Marvel movies to do two other things. So how about go back and tell them, I don't want to do nine movies, but if you can consider me only doing six, I'll do this. Now, even so, with committing to that, Evans wound up being locked in a role, that role, for, for roughly a decade. 
which he said at the get-go kind of scared him, but then closed out this statement with, you know, look, maybe the thing you're most scared of is actually the thing you should do. So he took the part. But that's largely an excerpt from Joanna's book, uh, MCU, the, the, the Reign of Marvel Studios, which again shows up at your local bookstore on October 10th. And speaking of books, we circle back on one of our favorites here at this show, uh, James Gunn, uh, director of the Three Guardians movie, and now you know over at Warner Brothers trying to do good work. But again, he can't get anything going on the DC side until the writers and the actors track is up. And we mentioned, top of the show today, that Marvel Studios assembled documentary, uh, the one about Secret Invasion, that dropped just earlier this week, but earlier this month, on September 13th, the Marvel Studios assembled documentary about the making of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 was posted. And as part of that film, James Gunn talked about how when he went in to make the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, he had a little book that he had assembled. And, and in fact, he shared it with with Kevin Feige and, and the production team. And he describes that I worked very hard to put together this, this little book with all these pictures and photo reference and all this stuff. And in this book were all the characters, you know, from the Guardians world and who I wanted to play those characters. And of course, the irony here is none of those actors are uh, that were in my book actually wound up playing the characters with the exception of Zoe Saldana, who I met and loved right from the beginning. So, um, <laughs> Aaron, I'm not entirely sure what the lesson here is. That, I mean, uh, I know that uh, Tarantino's had a little thing where he's like, hey, I wrote the script called Pulp Fiction, and for this character I want, my first choice is this guy, and second choice is this guy, and if we can't get them, I want the, and, you know, mm -hmm. he mm -hmm. would write for with a, one specific person in mind to play that role. And it's like, obviously in Hollywood, they may not be available at that time mm -hmm. that you're shooting your movie. So I got to have two or three backup choices. And, uh, I think that's very, very common. You reach out mm -hmm. to someone, they'd be like, Oh, I'd love to, but I got this other thing going on over here. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they could have been Chris Evans. They wanted, and he's like, sorry, I signed up for nine freaking movies, guys. <laughs> I used to have this IHOP job where I, I bust tables. I'm like really committed to it. Now I got to do nine movies. I'm a working actor all of a sudden. And I'm, uh, booked wow but it's so interesting that you bring up pulp fiction because when you look at that cast today mm -hmm. that's all a-listers mm -hmm. who else would he have been going after travolta willis you know jackson Ving Rams, you know, I mean, you know, all of those people, uh, right. let alone Uma Thurman. Yeah, well, he's he's got his list of regulars, you know, that he likes to work with, and and uh, was it Michael Madsen is like yeah, always yeah, 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 in yeah. his stuff. You know, he's such a fan of cinema mm -hmm. that uh, he's probably got not just a, an A choice, B choice, and C choice, but he's probably got all the way to Z. On, wouldn't it be great if this person played this character? But anyway. Speaking of which, though, have you heard that the next one is supposedly his last movie? Yeah, I heard that. I've heard that, I think, for the last three movies now. I will believe <laughs> Quentin Tarantino has made his last movie when he is in a pine box and six feet under. Uh, until mm. then, I believe that man. Well, first off, it's it's good publicity. This is my last film. Well, I got to mm. see it then, right? Mm-hmm. 
And, uh, oh, well, now I got an itch to tell another story all of a sudden. And I think, you know, Scorsese has probably gone through that a number of times. And this is my last film. This is, oh, wait, uh, Miyazaki? Right? Oh, Weren't you guys talking about he's retired a hundred so times? No, that yeah, that that I mean, literally this thing, this yeah. thing that said it's coming out this year, The Boy and the Heron, was supposed to be his last film and, and but on the red carpet at the I wanna say Toronto Film Festival, his you know, the the head of the studio is like well, yeah, he, I know he said that, but he's also been showing up at work and saying, I got an idea. So yeah. it's like, all right, here's hoping that Quentin goes the Miyazaki route and just we, we just get more and going. more good stuff. Yep. So, yep. And speaking of, of good stuff that keeps going, um, 32nd Street, I mean, I have to tell you, I'm not sometimes comfortable with the things I learn on your, <laughs> your podcast about Madison Avenue. Yeah. I, I suddenly feel dirty and used mm -hmm. and manipulated. That means it's working. All right, go ahead. <laughs> okay, so what rug are you going to be pulling out from under me this week? So well, I'm not going to tell you. Okay. Uh, I'm going to tell Robert Orth, who's actually a Disney Dish listener as well as a Marvelous Disney listener. Oh, and he's okay. And he's now a, a 32nd patron subscriber, and I sent him a message. I said, hey, thanks for signing up. What do you, what do you like about the show so far? What do you want to hear more of? And he said, mm -hmm. I would love... It. Actually, this is kind of funny. He said, I like most of your shows, which mm -hmm. means a couple, a couple missed the mark there. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I said, well, hey, man, I want to make sure that you absolutely love whatever I do next. So mm -hmm. what do you want me to do? And he said, I would like to hear the inspiration for some of how commercials are made. And I'm like, well, mm. I can only speak for myself because I don't know where other people's inspiration comes from, but I've got about 30 years of material where I can tell stories about it. So uh, this episode is uh, many, many, many very weird, bizarre, crazy commercials that were created because client had weird circumstances for me, or maybe mm -hmm. I just had a wacky idea, but the, it fit the demographic or whatever. But uh, mm -hmm. it's how the, the sausage is made is that episode on uh, 32nd Street. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, you know, I will make a point of checking that out. But again, I also check out what you're doing on, on social media. And so we are still at the X. We are still at the Twitters. Yeah, I don't have time for anything else. So I just stick stick with what's there okay. and uh, keep it simple. And uh, mm -hmm. that's at Azaprod, A-Z-A-P-R-O-D. Okay. Um, and I, we're still over there on X as Jim Hill Media, likewise on Instagram, also on Facebook as Jim Hill Media News. Let's see, while we're doing plugs here, uh, mention the other podcasts we have here. We've got, of course, Disney Dish that I do with Len Testa. Oh, God, I didn't even tell you the story about, uh, well, uh, folks, uh, Aaron and I are recording this week's show late because I we had to push the Disney Dish recording mm -hmm. session and, a little and bit And why today. was that that you had to push the Disney Dish session, Jim? Because the Today Show reached out to our friend, Mr. Testa, and had to do the pre-interview because he's going on the show tomorrow to be an expert on the Walt Disney Company. So, I mean, it's just, uh, which I'm sorry. I think that's really cool. I did send him an email, by the way, saying, yep. please, for the love of all things holy, just ask them permission if they would mention uh, that you got a new show called Disney Unpack coming October 1st. <laughs> and, and he's <laughs> like, I'll be... ask, he's like, I'll ask. But I, and I'm like, look, if they say no, no big deal. 
right? No one's going to get mad about it because everybody's mm-hmm. got something to plug when they're on TV. You, okay. you say, I got a thing to plug. If you get, if you take the five seconds, plug it. And if they, and if they do, well, you got about 5 million new potential viewers. So uh, I get say that. The word. It's, it's just making that conversational in your three Three minutes and not a second oh, longer. Oh, no, actually, it's it's super easy because it's like when they do your introduction, it's like, here's Len Testa from Touring Plants. Also, mm-hmm. I hear you got a new show coming out called uh, Disney Unpacked with uh, Imagineer Jim Shul. Sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. October 1st, Patreon. So anyway, we're talking about data today, and uh, it's super easy. You guys I, really I, need I, to take a f***ing class. <laughs> I was about to say, God, you made that look easy. Okay, yeah. well, I, all right, speaking of somebody who's really bad at plugs, uh, getting back to me, uh, again, we have Disney Dish we do with Lentesto. We have Fine Tuning, which I do with Drew Taylor, which is about animation news. And I should also mention that Mr. Taylor has his wonderful Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast that he does with Charles Hood. Uh, we also have Looking at Lucasfilm, which I do with Brian Gaughan, and he and I will be recording a new episode of that sometime this coming weekend. We don't have to talk about Disney Unpacked at this moment because Aaron just <laughs> did this amazing plug so we can move on there. I'm just hoping it shows up on the Today Show. That's all I care about right yeah, now. Yeah, oh, my yeah. God. All that's right. a gold mine, baby. A gold yeah. mine. Grab a pickaxe and dig with me. <laughs> I know. I know. But for now, this week, folks, I think that's going to do it for Marvelous Disney. Uh, so on behalf of Mr. Adams, thank you so much for listening. And we will be back soon. <laughs>